Listeners, we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at GravelTrapF1 and share your love for F1 with us. Maybe Christian Horner watches Dance Moms. Honestly, it would not surprise me one bit. Race fans, welcome to Gravel Trap F1. I'm Christina. And I'm Caroline. The 2023 F1 season kicked off this week in Bahrain, and the results were shocking to some. And for others, a bit of a drag. Well, let's see if we can reduce that drag. That's our goal, because today's show is all about DRS. Yes, the letterbox that lets you send it. Christina will be schooling us on the drag reduction system. While Caroline details the tenuous relationship one of this year's rookies has had with DRS over his career. It's the kind of relationship that could get its own reality show. Later, our producer Buck will join us to talk about what he promises to be some mind-blowing statistics about Formula One drivers. Now that's a field that could use some drag reduction. What is DRS? DRS is the drag reduction system, and it is the only aerodynamic component that a driver is allowed to change during the race. It opens up this little flap at the back of the car, and it lets airflow pass. So what is drag more specifically? So it's aerodynamic resistance that acts in the opposite direction of the object's travel. So anytime you're walking through wind and you feel it just blasting you in the face and you're kind of trying to walk and punch through that, that's drag. It's essentially just trying to keep you from going forward. And that same thing can happen to these cars. If you look at the back wing of a car, it is curved, kind of like a skateboard ramp. And it has a portion that is parallel to the ground or the track. And it has a portion that's going almost straight up into the air or as close to it as it makes sense. And essentially, the air is going to glide along the bottom portion and then swoop up into the air. So it's pushing down on that bottom part of the wing, but also against the part that's facing upwards. And then when you open the DRS flap, all of a sudden the air can just glide right past. So it reduces that resistance that the car is experiencing as it goes through the air. But that also means it's reducing downforce, which is why you only see it being used on straights and not in turns, because it reduces the downforce so much that it does make it unsafe in corners to use it. Mm, That makes sense. So when was DRS introduced into Formula One? It's relatively new. It was only introduced in 2011. And that's because these cars at the time were producing so much dirty air. And dirty air just means that it's turbulent. Typically, when a car is being designed, it's working under the assumption that it's moving through laminar airflow. And laminar airflow just means that the air is moving in a very predictable, straightforward pattern. Whereas turbulent air, it's twisty, it's turvy, it's kind of going all over the place. And when you have that air that's behaving in such an unpredictable manner going over the car, the car that's behind, it, it reduces its stability and it does make it harder to get close to the car in front of you and overtake. So DRS was introduced in order to help that car that's behind overtake the one that's in front. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Very yeah, interesting. and it's actually a pretty small opening. It's only 85 millimeters wide when it's opened. It uses a hydraulic system, and the driver activates it by pushing a button on their steering wheel. So how do you know when you can and can't use DRS during the race? So there are DRS zones, and those are select straights where the driver can use 
DRS. But before they can even think about using it in those zones, they have to make sure that they're one second away from the car in front of them. So they'll go through what is the detection zone, and there are just little loops on the track that are measuring how much time is in between those two cars. They'll get a notification on their steering wheel that they can use DRS, and sometimes their race engineer will also let them know that they will have it available just so that way they're even more prepared. Once they're in the DRS zone, they'll press the button on their steering wheel, and the rear flap will open and it'll stay open until the driver either lifts off the acceleration or presses on the brakes. Very cool. There's also specific times during the race when they cannot use it at all. So the two laps after a start or a restart, they're not allowed to use it or at the race director's discretion. So wet races come to mind or if there's a lot of debris on that DRS straight, they'll say no, no DRS this time. But during qualifying and any free practices, they can use it in those zones whenever they feel like it. Nice. So we talked about the detection point where you mm-hmm. where it senses whether or not the driver can use DRS, whether or not they're within the one second of the person in front of them. Has that sensor ever broken or like not worked during a race? The only example I could find of DRS not working was a Formula 3 race in 2019 where they just said, oh, the sensors aren't working, so we're just going to turn DRS off. Mm-hmm. It's... It's one of those things where if it's not working, they just say no more, no more DRS. At least if it's a detection point that race control is in charge of. Mm-hmm. So how much of an advantage does the DRS really provide to the driver behind? It gives a pretty big boost depending on the track and how fast they're going down those specific straights. It can give you a boost from anywhere between 10 and 20 kilometers per hour. Mm-hmm. It's it's a spe- it's a significant little little boop boop, <laughs> little boop boop, little little push, little push. Exactly, and some of the tracks also have back to back DRS zones, which is where things get really interesting. Bahrain, oh. in particular, we just saw it. We saw it last year, and not so much this year. At least not an example I could think of where somebody gets overtaken in the first DRS zone, but then they get a chance to get back at the next person in the second one. Interesting. And track to track, there are one to four DRS zones. And this year, I believe there are five different tracks where they're fiddling with the lengths and where they start and end. Melbourne is going to have four. It's a good time. They're, They're constantly just playing around with it and trying to make sure that they get the best racing possible. Yes, I'm excited for Melbourne. to. They added an extra DRS mm-hmm. zone. So the previ- previously they had three. Now they have four. I think all of the fans love seeing a uh, DRS zone because it increases the action, it increases the fun, and it increases the chance of overtakes, which we love it, to see. We love to see it. And currently there is, I mean, not even currently, it, it's always been this ongoing debate where some people do think that DRS is it's an aid and it does help drivers overtake and that it should be outlawed for that reason because it's not about the driver's skill. It's just about making sure that they're as close as possible to the car in front of them. And with Mm -hmm. these new style of cars with the ground effects, the overall theory was that it would allow cars to get closer together to the point where DRS might not be needed. But so many teams are struggling with their design that Mm -hmm. I don't see DRS disappearing anytime soon, or at least not in the next three to four years. Yeah. I would Mm -hmm. be surprised if they ever got rid of DRS altogether Mm -hmm. because it creates such good racing in the end it 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 creates mm-hmm. it gives it gives the guy behind an advantage that then he loses when he passes which i think keeps things interesting so mm-hmm. 
As well, I just think that even fiddling with the rules is what's more likely than having it disappear entirely. This Mm -hmm. year, we're going to be seeing them test out instead of starting DRS after two laps, it's going to be after one. So the cars are going to be closer together and it's going to keep that pack more tight Mm -hmm. and essentially, hopefully, mean that there aren't runaway drives like we just saw in Bahrain. Yes, from Uh, the Red Bulls. The Red Um, Bulls. And even beyond that, I could see them changing it that way Sometimes you can only use it if you're overtaking a back marker car because that's mm-hmm. honestly so helpful. They're not racing each other. You might as well just let them get that easy little, whoop, I'm going to leapfrog over you and make everyone's life easier. I love that the term for DRS that we're using is a little foop foop, a little, a little shoop shoop. You get <laughs> a little shoop shoop, shoop, shoop. <laughs> a little, little vroom vroom little if you bonus. will. Yes. A little pep in your step. <laughs> Um, okay. Do you mind explaining? I know this isn't in this isn't in our notes, but I think I know. I think you know what this is. Do you okay. mind explaining what a DRS train is? Mm-hmm. Essentially, a DRS train is when there are three or more cars that are within one second of each other, and it just means that while some cars they're all getting an advantage, right? All the cars mm-hmm. that are behind, and they're just kind of stuck there. Because as much as they're getting an advantage to the car that's in front of them, they also have somebody behind them who's gaining an advantage. And Which kind of makes it not an advantage. <laughs> not at all. It essentially negates it. You're just mm-hmm. stuck in this line. And sometimes the DRS trains give us really cool double overtakes by the person who's behind them. Like the third person in the lineup gets that really, really cool double overtake. The most clear one in my mind is Esteban Ocon. He did that last year. I can't even remember which track, but... Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, gorgeous overtake um, on Pierre Gasly was in the front, and I don't remember who else was in that. But yeah, you can get rid of some really, really cool double overtakes from DRS trains, or you can have the Monza situation where Nick DeVries was able to just sit in front and chill in the Williams while everyone else was just stuck behind him. <laughs> <laughs> like, he was the DRS train conductor, if you will, which I feel like Fernando Alonso has gotten yeah, Fernando Alonso has gotten quite the reputation for being the train conductor of Formula One for the last couple of years. He is fantastic at defending. And I sent you guys the little Fernando Alonso hype train I made, right? Yes. I, I sent you guys that. the hype train. <laughs> I, I want to figure out how to animate that. I want the little like steam to go shoop, shoop. Yes. That would be so great. Very cool. Get along the hat train. Maybe I'll make a caboose for Lance. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with the way that the Aston Martins are looking this year, it's not actually looking like they'll be in any trains, hopefully, anytime soon, because they're they're outpacing people very, very True. quickly, very easily. So that concludes the formation lap. And now we can pass things on to Caroline, scooch our boot a little bit, and hear about a rookie driver and DRS, a fickle mistress. <laughs> yes. So today during the Grand Prix section of the podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about how DRS has played a large role in the lives of some of the drivers that we know and love on the grid today. Of course, we all saw how DRS uh, evaded Max Verstappen last year during the Spanish Grand Prix. Max Verstappen was just on a tear for most of last season, not really having any problems or you know, adversaries besides Charles Leclerc, but I feel like we can all agree that Ferrari kind of self-destructed in the majority of last season. But during the Spanish Grand Prix particularly, uh, Max Verstappen had a little bit of a moment of road rage because his DRS flap was not working. 
And I think that fans everywhere got a little bit of a chuckle listening to his radio when the engineer was calmly asking him to please try to press the DRS button again. He, he said, I'm pressing it 50 effing times. And then you wouldn't hear anything from the engineer. And he would say, everything's all right, Max. Try it again. Try pressing it once. And so as we know, DRS can make or break a race for a driver. Max Verstappen uh, clearly had his issues with it last year during the Spanish Grand Prix. It did not stop him from winning the race. He did go on to win the race. Um, but yeah, it was a big difference maker for a lot of the drivers. Particularly, the driver that I feel like has the most intimate relationship with DRS problems is this year's rookie, Oscar Piastri. We're going to be going back in time, think back to all of the COVID days in 2020 when you were on lockdown and you had nothing else to do. Well, COVID wasn't the only problem that Oscar Piastri was dealing with in 2020. He was also dealing with problems with DRS. Uh, this was his rookie Formula 3 season. And for those of you that don't know what Formula 3 is, the drivers have to go through multiple different series before they can be qualified or ready for Formula One. It works kind of in the reverse numerical order. Uh, by the time they get to Formula Three, they are starting to learn how to race similarly to the Formula One style. It's definitely a step up from karts. Uh, they go from Formula Three and then they can graduate to Formula Two, which is there. It's there when they can finally have a chance of hoping to graduate to Formula One, which is the pinnacle of motorsport and everything that we're talking about. But Oscar Piastri specifically back in 2020 was in his rookie year of Formula Three. And starting in uh, February at Silverstone, he had his first DNF of the season when the DRS refused to work for him for the race, and it caused him to have to withdraw from the race completely. It was a huge bummer. It was his first DNF of his rookie season. He was very excited to be there. Promising talent. Um, and it was the genesis of a lot of problems that he had with DRS that season, to the point where he tweeted out in July saying, quote, I'm happy to announce that DRS and I have mended our relationship and are now stronger than ever, which he then put in parentheses. I've just jinxed the beep out of that. So Oscar has quite a sense of humor when it comes to his relationship with DRS. And not a few days later, he also tweeted out. So I see DRS told the rest of my car to stop working. Beep move, DRS. Beep move. And I just want our listeners to know that he didn't say beep. He said an, an expletive that I'm just going to choose to not say. Um, and then... Uh, I have to find you some fun alternatives. I know. <laughs> we really should. We really should. We should think about that. Um, and then not a month later, he tweeted out once again a love letter to DRS saying, Dear DRS, I really appreciate you supplying my Twitter content, but all caps, please just work please. Your old friend, Oscar. As these love letters were passed back and forth, DRS usually responded with rejection by saying uh, that it wasn't going to work. This is just a testament to what a great driver uh, Oscar Piastri is, because not only did he win in his rookie season of Formula 3 in 2020, but then he went on to Formula 2 in 2021, where he won again in his rookie season of Formula 2 in 2021. And then he was promoted to the reserve driver's seat for the Alpine team in 2022, which is where a lot of us saw him for the first time last year. Again, through iconic tweets. Oh, yes. Many, many iconic <laughs> tweets. Because even, 
<laughs> yes. I'm, I'm not even going to, we're not even going to go down that road because let's be real. Oh. Oscar, I feel like is the king of Twitter when it comes to the Formula One grid. He's right. killing the Twitter game. I'm, he, I'm just uh, excited to see what he brings this year. Like Seriously. I need the standard, the expectations. They're up there. I know. The the hype is so high on him, and I feel bad for him that McLaren hasn't really been able to give him the best of cars, uh, seeing as he DNF'd in Bahrain due to a technical error, it seems. I want to see what he tweeted about that. I know. Yeah, we got to see. Speaking of his time with McLaren, when Oscar was still in Formula 3 and having his DRS issues, unbeknownst to a lot of the rest of us, Daniel Ricciardo was actually having DRS issues in the same season. Now, he was not driving for McLaren at the time. He was driving for Renault. But Oscar tweeted to Daniel saying, Daniel Ricardo, I have experience with this DRS character. Let me know if you need some advice. It seems that DRS was really becoming a problem for both of the Aussies. There was another tweet that he did because Autosport did a feature with him after he won the Formula 3 championship where they asked him about his trials with DRS. And he said, if I have to tweet one more tweet about DRS, I'm going to cry. <laughs> oh. oh, I I don't. Is it wrong that I kind of like seeing grown men cry? What? <laughs> I feel like it's just good for you. You're letting your emotions out. It's Christina's a healthy future thing. man. Take notes. She likes it when you cry. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's great. That's great. Please note, I didn't say I'd like to make them cry. True. I, I guess she likes progressed. Ferrari fans. So then she's just looking for a Ferrari fan. That's all she needs, people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. That was probably a little sassy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I have for the Grand Prix portion of this podcast. And here for the checkered flag segment to tell us about facts and statistics, we have our very own producer, Buck, returning from his latest stint as a Vegas showgirl. Buck! Oh, thank you so much, guys. All right, so. I'm here today to uh, introduce a segment I like to call Formula 101. The F1 world is abuzz with praise for Fernando Alonso's stunning debut with Aston Martin at the Bahrain GP this past weekend, where he secured his 99th podium in F1. For context, it's been nearly 17 years since he was last world champion, and now we're seeing him back on the podium. He's a driver who's started racing in F1 22 years ago. The numbers you know, involved in this are insane. People talk about how Hamilton currently is getting up there in his age and maybe too old to be fighting for the championship. And here's Alonzo going, nope, let me get up on that podium. Mm-hmm. So it's really exciting. And it got me asking, like, what are some other crazy Formula One statistics that are out there that we could induce wide-eyed amazement on your faces as well as those of our listeners. So starting with Alonzo, he's 41 years old and looking, I'm 42. And uh, he's like that meme. I'm a, me feel... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a grandmother. I'm a grandmother. It makes me feel real bad about myself uh, looking at these numbers. He's been in Formula One for 20 seasons. Uh, he did take two years off where he went on to win like other race championships, World Rally or World Endurance, I believe. Um, but in F1, 20 seasons, he's he's been racing. That's 357 Grand Prix. 
he actually secured one Grand Slam, and that was 2010 in Singapore. Uh, he has a total of 32 wins and now 99 podiums. One of the more interesting statistics about the podiums is that he also holds the record for longest dry spell between said podiums, mm. which is seven years. Wow. 146 races. And that wasn't between this podium and the last one. It was be- between Hungary 2014 and Qatar 2021, oh. which he got on the podium and I completely spaced on. Wow. So that's the longest dry spell between podiums. That's crazy. Um, I went and looked at that list. The top 10 of the list of longest dry spells is a pretty impressive list because there's drivers currently on the grid on that list and other drivers that you're going to names you're going to rec- recognize. Schumacher. That's, Which Schumacher? That uh, needs to be specified. <laughs> Michael. Uh, Michael Andretti. Daniel Kvyat. And Lance Stroll. Lance! He's number 10. He's number 10 on that list with three years, 61 races between podiums. Wow. I kind of forget that Lance has actually been on the grid for like seven years. He's been there for a minute. So on the topic of dry spells, I went and looked at who had the most podiums but never won a race. Ooh. It was really successful drivers. Podiums. Just... Nico Hulkenberg has definitely not won a race, but he also hasn't really podiumed, so he doesn't count. <laughs> so number one on the list of most podiums but never won a race is Nick Heidfeld. Oh. He got 13 podiums, no wins. He also holds the record for most second places, with, uh, P2, with no win. Second place is first loser. Is that a Christian Horner quote? <laughs> no, that's from Dance Moms, I think. Oh, because I'm like, I swear I've heard Christian Horner say that before. Maybe Christian Horner watches Dance Moms. Honestly, it would not surprise me one bit. Him and him and Jerry just at home watching Dance Moms. Can you picture it? That's part of how to be a team principal yes. handbook is watch Dance Moms. All right. Who's next in the uh, longest drive? Uh, the most seconds. So I, I didn't get all 10, but number four is Romain Grosjean with 10 podiums, no wins. That checks. <laughs> yeah. Number seven, surprisingly, uh, which a lot of people forget that he was a driver, our esteemed Martin Brundle. Martin! Oh, yeah. Nine podiums, no wins. Oh, that's tough. And number nine on the list is not... He's going to stay on the list for a little while. I think, that at least this year... Lando Norris, six podiums, no wins. Oh, right. Ugh, Lando. Ow. Oh, that hurt to hear. That hurt. Yes. Other notable <laughs> names further down that you're that are currently on the grid is Lance Stroll, mm-hmm. uh, Alex Albon, and Magnuson. Oh, interesting. I feel like Albon should have won a race by now. But again, he was in that Red Bull car, and it wasn't stellar. Yeah. Um. I, I thought the Brundle thing was very interesting, so I went down that rabbit hole. And uh, after leaving F1, Martin Brundle went on to win the 24-hour of Le Mans. Nice. Mm. Uh, with Jaguar. And he actually raced at Le Mans again in, as recently as 2012. So wow. not that long ago. That's like a yeah. decade. <laughs> Christina's like, that was not forever ago. Not that long ago. <laughs> Not that long ago is five years or less. Oh, Christina's like, I was not, four years old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not when you're my age. A decade is not a long time. <laughs> um, some other interesting 
facts about him. I he is this is unconfirmed at least currently. He might be David Coulthard's manager, like professional talent manager. I'm not sure. It, there's there's there was reports that at one time he was and may still be. Interesting. Interesting. And he also released a book in 2004 called Working the Wheel. Hmm. So he's an author as well. Um, earlier, you you two were talking about uh, the rookies on the grid, or at least Oscar Piastri and his uh, his debut. Of course, he didn't have the greatest first race, mm -hmm. but it got me thinking about first races, rookies in their their first stint in F1. So technically, there's only two on the grid right now. There's mm -hmm. uh, Logan Sargent and Piastri. DeVries had his rookie debut last year yep. and finished P9, which in the top 10 for a rookie is is notable for sure, but not some of the most amazing stuff we've seen. Three drivers in history have actually won a F1 Grand Prix on their debut. Oh. All of them happened in 1950 and 51. So this is early on when everyone was new anyway. Oh, so it's okay. kind of, I mean, it's impressive by today's standards, but back then it was probably expected. But Giuseppe Farina, Johnny Parsons, and Giancarlo Baghetti were the three individuals who won at F1 Grand Prix on their debut rookie race. Not just their season, but hmm. first race. Was one of them like a reserve driver? Because I don't understand if they were all rookies and it was two years. There's only one winner no. well, they, in the first they race, race of the season. They didn't race full time sometimes back in the uh, day. Oh, yeah. Sometimes they wouldn't yeah. even go to that. You had to travel. It's, it's, from Makes this sense. country to that country, mm -hmm. um, it was a lot more willy nilly back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so and I, I I could dig it up for you, but it might have been a, a case where this driver had was a reserve or a replacement sure. driver yeah. mid season or something. Some teams would join mid season. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, That's another episode altogether, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, going into a more modern point of view. Uh, Two of the most notable debut finishes for rookies are Kevin Magnuson in 2014 scored a podium and came in P2 on his first race ever. That Viking man. We love him. We love Not him for K-Mag. Not a single rookie has done that since. And nor has done that since, I think, the 60s. Um, following wow. oh, oh, the person before him to, to do that I, I let me correct myself. Not since the '60s, since 2007, Lewis Hamilton comes in mm -hmm. third place debut race. That hadn't been done since 1971. Wow. So it was. So going back in time, you have K Mag in 2014. You've got Hamilton in 2007. The last person to get on a podium their debut was 1971, and before that, you're looking at the '60s. Wow. So looking at the data, it it, it was interesting to see how poorly some of these rookies had done on their first race ever so many of them especially in the 80s and 90s were dnfs or retirements for one reason or another but a lot of them were you know would go on to be world champions like looking at the list you could see you know Aaron senna retired his first race mm -hmm. and the statistics might you'd look at them and think you can determine you know oh what does this mean about the driver what does this mean about the car mm -hmm. um and the they're fun to look at, but I don't think there's a lot of conclusions you can draw big picture from this. Mm -hmm. You could you could probably learn a little bit more about the state of the sport at the time rather than the drivers themselves and how good they might be. 
because even Verstappen, uh, you'll find him, you know, his first couple races. I think he he didn't win a race for 23 races after he started. It was his first. His first win was with Red Bull when he swapped mid-season. Yeah, he didn't win with. Okay. So and but Hamilton won his like sixth F1 race Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't but I don't think that's going to tell you much about the drivers as much as as much as it does clearly uh, the car. Mm hmm. In, in those cases, yeah. I don't want to start that debate. Is it the driver or the car? I'm not, I'm not going to go down that road, but that's also another episode. You guys can check this out. If you, uh, I got most of my information from, uh, stats F1.com. It's a French website. Mm. It's very up to date, very well maintained. And I recommend if you're mm-hmm. interested in these kind of numbers to, uh, check it out. Massive merci to the French because. They brought us. They brought us this beautiful sport, and they're bringing us the stats even still today. Oh, oh! Fun Fernando fact: He had his first F one debut a couple weeks. I want to say before Oscar Piastri was born. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's crazy! All right, well, that concludes all the fun statistics I have for everybody mm-hmm. today. Thank, Thank you, you for, for letting being me here, Buck. join you. Thanks for joining oh, us, Buck. Always a good time with you. Always a good time with statistics. I, I personally love numbers. They never lie. That concludes this episode of Gravel Trap F1. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at GravelTrapF1.